Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff. Uh, if you want to learn about our money management services, uh, we do have a hedge fund and a SMA uh, firm. You can reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com or go to the Invest With Us tab on Focus Compounding uh, to get more information on that. If you like event-driven investing and would like to stay on top of that, uh, be sure to go to insidearbitrage.com, click the link in the description, and that will notify them that you heard about them from us, which helps support everything that we do here on the pod. So in today's podcast, Jeff, we are going to be talking about your opportunity cost in a inflationary environment. And you had brought this up uh, to me last week, and I thought it would be good to uh, talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. This is because of an email. Someone emailed this in. Uh, a question about this, uh, specifically framing it the way that we're talking about here with uh, the idea of, you know, what if I'm worried about inflation, but I'm also worried about high asset prices, both. Yeah. Um, did you respond to that email or did you say we we're just going to talk on the pod about it? Uh, we are talking on the podcast about it. I will respond to the email. There you go. Uh, so Bill Gross wrote this uh, post, neither a lender nor a stockholder be. And I will put the description, uh, or I'll put the link in the description. And he was basically talking about uh, the movement in interest rates and the valuation of the S&P 500. And he has a chart right here uh, that goes a little bit into it. Uh, but he says, as the updated Goldman Sachs chart shown below might suggest, S&P 500 forward PE multiples have for the last five years been correlated to real 10-year treasury yields with the exception of the last 12 months or so. There is a long-term logic for this. A P-E ratio turned upside down to E uh, by P, meaning like earnings to price, is really an earnings yield, right? We talk about that all the time here on the podcast, mm -hmm. 10 times earnings. You can think about it like uh, a bond, 10 times earnings yield. Um, one might common sensically assume that if bond yields go up by 350 basis points, that everything else being equal, earnings yield, E to P, should follow somewhat. They did until the fall of 2022, as the chart will show, but not since. A plethora of explanations abound. The aforementioned strong economy, the bond market's assumption that the Fed will lower yields quickly in 2024, uh, I guess which would mean like a recession, and hopes for positive influences on productivity and earnings growth from AI are decent explanations. Everything else has not been equal during the 350 basis point rise in real 10-year treasuries. Once the Fed stops and lowers short-term rates, we've got a bull market optimist claim. Well, not so fast. So when people talk about like AI being mm -hmm. like this huge thing for it, I mean, do you think that's sort of a... I don't know, a filler word or a filler saying in a way. It's like whenever you talk about, oh, where that, where's that growth going to come from? Sometimes people just say China and it just makes everything make sense. I mean, I don't know. Like, is that something that's quantifiable when people yeah. think about that, like with AI? 
Sure. So it's potentially quantifiable. So, so labor productivity. So, you know, you can have productivity in terms of units of capital, units of labor, and both over periods of time, basically. So what you need, like to make an economy work and stuff is you need some one to use will to to be the entrepreneur, to be the government, to be whatever that exercises control over these things. And then you basically take capital in some forms, labor in some forms, put them together, and you need a certain amount of time, and that gives you an output, right? And so that's where we get GDP from. And so historically, there's only a few sources from which there's been a lot of economic growth. And it's a controversial topic because until the last few hundred years, even economists didn't really believe that there was real economic growth and progress over time. That's not how the science started. And then over time, it's been hard to measure a lot of these things. But it's critically important, and it may explain some of the issues that we've had recently, is that there could be declines in certain kinds of uh, uh, productivity and stuff caused by the pandemic or whatever, um, which would then mean that your economy is less capable of achieving the same levels it had even before. And so even with some, without some big need for a lot of um, even without a big surge in like demand or something, you're just not as capable of meeting the demand that you had before COVID. Everyone tries to go back to consuming like it was COVID, and yet they can no longer supply like it was COVID, right? That's the theory. So maybe everyone working at home instead of working in an office drops productivity and all of that. That would also mean that their wages should be lower because the wages and the productivity should basically match over time. Um, so there are some issues with that. Uh, in terms of labor productivity as like measured and stuff, the period that has the lowest growth is actually the period with um, the internet and computers and stuff being a huge. Uh, the period with the highest is uh, right after uh, World War II in the periods that they measure. Now, most of these things don't go back before World War II. Uh, so in the history of like the world and stuff, there's a few ways to improve things. Um, the big ones are you can accumulate a lot of capital which is what they've done in China, a lot of what they did in Japan and stuff, build up huge amounts of debt and whatever. And so per worker, you make a lot more money, but per unit of capital, you don't, right? And so eventually that falls apart because you can't meet the, uh, you can't get decent returns for stockholders. Some, uh, you know, you definitely uh, eventually get into positions where you can't actually make decent returns for your, for your um, lenders, you know? Um, and so then you have a bunch of bad debts and zombie things and whatever, but per worker, it goes well. So they've greatly increased the amount of capital they've used per person there. There's not, I mean, the number of people is going to shrink in China pretty soon. Um, the workforce will shrink and they always, the workforce was never expanding as fast as, as the amount of debt per worker was expanding. Right. So that's an easy way to make people richer. But the other ways with the productivity is trade. Um, so if we go really far back in history, we can see examples when I talk about things from, you know, Roman period and earlier and stuff, we can see differences in trade and stuff like, you know, um, Athens imported all of its food from modern day, like Ukraine and stuff and switched to producing all olive oil and stuff. And, you know, which makes sense because they should be growing olives. They shouldn't be growing wheat and that improved things. You could use animals. You could use simple machines, right? So they could use little pulleys and fulcrums and things. And then the big thing is they've, um, you know, what, over one and a half millennia later, they discover fossil fuels. And so that increases the amount that how productive each person can be by a huge amount, tremendous amount. And so you now, instead of multiplying things by a few times when you're using animals and simple machines and stuff of the work that someone can do when you give them a donkey and a, and a pulley and stuff, now they can do 50 times that amount. Because if you think about it, it's now capable of doing things that were never possible before. Um, you know, in the, in the ancient world and stuff, you could never move 
anything meaningfully across land, really. Uh, so railroads are a huge thing when that can happen, and it's just because of fossil fuels and burning that. Can, and so the idea is modern things, you know, isn't computing power and stuff of that kind of level that it can do for knowledge work, the same sort of multiplier that grunt work was done, physical labor was done by having the ability to have fossil fuels and stuff. So like all of our modern world is basically we burn a lot of fossil fuels and that's how we got rich to a significant extent. So what if AI could replace um, brain power the way that muscle power was replaced or magnified many times by burning coal basically and you know eventually oil and stuff. Um, and that is possible. Um, I, I don't know. It's, uh, there, I'd have some skepticism about some aspects of that, but yeah, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility, um, that AI could have important implications, but we'd have to figure out what those are and how it does them and what that achieves. Um, it's pretty easy to imagine the other ones. Um, the, you know, a lot of the things that were done by like fossil fuels and stuff are things that people had always, that it would be obvious if you explained it to them how the benefit would be. If you said there's something that can do many, many times the work of an individual person, it can be stored in a fairly, you know, dense enough that we can pile it up somewhere and save up the energy that we can burn later and stuff way, um, it would be really exciting to them. Like the concept of what oil and coal and stuff is would be exciting to anyone in the past, to any business. If you explained what it was, it would really excite them. I don't know if AI is that kind of thing. I'm not sure that AI is as exciting as fossil fuels, but maybe. I wanted to also bring up the fact that you had said on the podcast a couple of times uh, that you think cash may outperform stocks going forward. So what does yes. the investor do from like an opportunity cost uh, perspective, okay. right? So if you want to keep money um, at the Fed, basically it's paying like what, five and a quarter to five and a half. Um, inflation is doing what it's doing. What does the investor do uh, in an inflationary environment, especially when we are on the cusp of what does seem like a slowdown or a recession? All right. So the opportunity cost is what your return would be in the thing that you would own um, over time, but it would matter linking it over time in terms of what the future decisions would be that you would do with that, including the return that you got on that asset, which has some importance here because the a significant component of your returning things is going to be the reinvestment aspect of it. And that's meaningful because things like the at extreme levels where they talk about like the yield to maturity or something of uh, an investment, they kind of just say, this is what you would get if you invested in it. And they kind of move on and don't talk about it. But if it was the early 1980s or something, and you could invest and hold forever Buffett kind of stock, or you could invest in a bond, it might seem that the two were similarly attractive, but actually they weren't. The stock was much better. Uh, and the reason for that is that the stock gave you a large amount of return that it quickly couldn't be reinvested at the initial yield that it had. So you could buy, uh, I mean, the bond. Uh, so you could buy a bond that, that say yielded 15% or something, but really rapidly it then would be yielding only 9%, which is a big gain. But then it means that over the life of this 30 year thing, you're going to be reinvesting at lower and lower rates throughout the entire time. Uh, cash works the opposite way. 
So you put money in cash, the amount that it says that it yields you doesn't mean that that's the amount that you're going to have. It means that that's an amount that you're going to be paid, which you then can use in addition to the cash that you already have, the principal, investing in something else. And so it's an option on the possibility of higher rates being there, right? And it's an option on the possibility of lower prices uh, of stocks. So what you miss out on if you don't hold cash is the possibility that you could invest in stocks after they've fallen. In addition to the possibility of the interest rate being higher or lower in the future as well. So like when when cash gets to be about zero and people say, well, you know, it's better than making zero, that is true, but that's only the current period. The expected value that you would get by putting something in cash is never actually zero. Um, I mean, we did a bit of this calculation when we looked at like frost and stuff, but you'd have to actually make a calculation that like rates wouldn't increase for a few years to get the answer that it's better to invest in things as far as 10 years and stuff rather than wait at zero to get two and a half later um, because of how large the losses would be in it. Because like, you know, in like a long-term bond right now, you're down 50%, right? So if you bought a long-term bond in the middle of COVID, you've, you've lost 50% right now. And what's worse than that is you've lost 50% and the if you reinvest in it, uh, you've never gotten more than what's on cash. So, I mean, the yield on 30 years is still not higher than the yield on cash. So it's declined by a huge amount and it's a bad yield. It's not more attractive than other instruments that you have. So it's just, uh, you know, a really big problem that way. So the idea for being in cash would be that you could invest at stocks at a lower price is possible. But the argument against that is what if the price never comes down? Um, and the reason why I'd say, you know, I never encourage people to hold cash instead of being in stocks and bonds, but I think realistically cash is likely to match or outperform right now, um, probably outperform, is that what you could lose is, uh, what you could pass up on is not really much more attractive than what cash yields now. So it's, it's hard to come up with any math in which stocks don't ever decline, and yet they return more than like money markets return, Right because the prices are so high now. So without that, you're kind of saying why. I mean, so yeah, you miss out on something, but to say that you shouldn't sell something or wait on the sidelines or whatever, you kind of say, well, is it the right call or not? It's not really about like, is this the moment? But I guess how you would measure it is, will you be better off at some point in the future if you hadn't been in stocks than if you had? If the answer is that you'd always be better off in stocks then you shouldn't have gotten out, even if like they go down and stuff. If they don't go down enough to have put you in a better position, it's not about like timing that. But if what it turns out is that five years from now, it would have been better if you'd been out of stocks and just holding cash for five years and then buying stocks five years later, um, then if you'd stayed in stocks, then that would mean the answer was you should have been in cash, presumably. And vice versa. If that never happens, then it, you should have stayed in stocks. Just from your own real life, um, you know, work currently going on, right? So yes, the SP 500, this chart being true SP four PEs 18 times. Yeah. How much of that is skewed by four or five large companies? I mean, have you seen just from your own work, uh, a bunch of other companies that are actually a lot cheaper than this 18 no. times? Uh, okay. some are cheaper, but no, I don't think that that's skewed much at all. In fact, um, I mean, it. we don't really look at a lot of S&P things, but 
Um, eh, I, I guess, yeah, there's only a couple sectors that are higher than the S&P. We don't have a chart of that or something, but I would guess that if we broke down 10 or 12 or whatever sectors they they have, only maybe two could be higher PE than this. So yes, every sector basically has a lower PE than this, but that is because everything in the S&P that is heavily weighted is information technology. So I think consumer discretionary and information technology have higher PEs than this. Everything else is a lower PE than this. But because all the heavily weighted companies are basically information technology or, or whatever they call it, communication technology, I don't know what they call it, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, tech in the sense of you know data and information and stuff, tech, not in terms of metallurgy and stuff, tech. Um, that is... Uh, where you get all the weighting, right? The Magnificent Seven stocks or whatever, they're all that stuff. So, um, and they're all priced above this level. So yes, that is true that this is exaggerating. But the the PE ratio for any one year, the four PE ratio is meaningless. So I don't know why it's included here or why anyone does that. I also think that the chart itself and stuff is, from a rational basis, makes a lot of sense, but empirically is, is baseless as well. Um, if we look both at, last hundred years in the US markets, look at other markets. I don't believe that markets try to do what anyone says they're doing about this discount rate stuff. The uh, stocks and bonds are sometimes both cheap, like in the early 1980s. Uh, stocks expensive, bonds normal, late 90s. Uh, stocks cheap, bonds expensive, uh, 1946 and stuff. Now there was yield co curve control and stuff for some of the period that I'm talking about there. But even then, so then why aren't you pricing equities off of uh, a controlled yield curve, but you are pricing bonds off of it? You know, it doesn't make sense. So at, at the extremes, it's at best 50-50. And why is that? Because from everything that I've seen, both historically looking at things outside the U.S. from long ago, even things we talked about 2,000 years ago to today and everything, the only indication of what really determines what stock prices are is the tightness of financial conditions as felt by people at the moment. Now, this is controversial because the Fed has inverted the curve, and that's supposed to be a sign of tightness. It's a high rate. It's a high enough real rate. It's actually about a normal real rate in terms of long-term human history, but but it's high compared to much of the period where the U.S. had high inflation. So since, um, uh, since going off any connection to gold, since completely abandoning the whole Bretton Woods thing and stuff— um, this rate is, uh, you know, it's not loose, right? But all the indexes of like financial conditions and all those sorts of things say it's looser rather than tight. That people don't feel tightness. And tightness in like call money is what apparently determines P ratios and stuff. As far as I can tell, I really can't see justification for beliefs that people actually make these calculations rather than um, it's a question about the willingness to some extent, which is how we get bubbles and stuff, but especially the buying power of people and uh, that participate in the markets. And so when you squeeze their buying power uh, overall, um, stock prices fall. And when you loosen that up, uh, uh, that they would rise uh, in terms of multiples compared to other things. So that is really what, I mean, I think, you know, um, which isn't helpful to the Fed or something, but what it means is you have to, if you want this kind of thing to work, 
the way that it's worked in the past and stuff. The only way you'll know that you're tight enough is when you break the stock market. You know, I mean, that that's when you would know. You'll know when the things that you are signs of distress start to happen. Um, and that would isn't happening now uh, or it doesn't seem to be. I mean, like I said, mo most we don't know how reliable these things are, but the things they try to measure of financial conditions that are outside of basically what cash pays and the fact the money supply is contracted or even um, over a long enough period of time now and that you invert the curve. Everything after that is pretty loose. Um, so like the initial stuff of what the Fed's done is tight. Uh, many crises and stuff are uh, yield curve inverts and uh, money supply declines. Um, and certainly money supply had been on a certain kind of trajectory and then it comes down with the inverted curve. That's very typical of recession, financial panic, whatever about to happen. But it usually shows up in other things. Um, but we did have the whole crypto blew up and um, uh, banks failed. So something did happen, but it didn't register that much in terms of these different um, things that are tried to create to determine financial conditions. So it's unclear. Um, yeah. But it is a factor in like inflation and the effect the, the Fed has and everything, because obviously if house prices were actually tumbling, if stock prices were actually tumbling, presumably that would have effect and slow down things and possibly increase unemployment, but certainly at least slow down inflation and stuff. And um, that's not exactly happening. So, um, but yeah, but I, the honest answer is that I don't believe in this kind of chart. Uh, I don't think that the forward PE is meaningful in any way. Real rates are difficult to determine when rates are this low. Um, you know, if you have inflation like Turkey or Ar Argentina or something, I guess you can talk in terms of real rates, but I've never found it useful looking at real rates when we're talking about rates as low as this. Um, and this is what has often been, you know, what rates look like because there would be so much complications about what you're expecting for the future. I think a lot of what we see that people say is like that they're expecting a slowdown I don't know. It could be that they're expecting slowdown. It could be they're expecting a gradual decline in inflation that's, you know, fairly smooth, but fairly starting and happening at a pretty rapid rate. Um, you know, that would achieve sort of the same thing because it would get the real rates more even across the curve than people might realize so that you wouldn't necessarily have inversions to the extent that it seems like there is because actually that is an artifact of their beliefs about inflation and when it will happen and what periods and stuff. So it's very hard. We don't have, I mean, there are markets that with, they can compare it off tips and stuff. There's stuff that you can compare it off of, but I don't think it's very reliable. The big markets that you have would have to be making a guess about inflation and stuff. Um, so my feeling is that, you know, if, if conditions are really loose and stuff, you can support really high PEs and stuff. And if conditions are tight, then they can come down a lot. Um, and, it's very unclear what conditions are like. Some things have blown up, but a bunch of signs are that it's not that bad. Um, if value is mixed. your North Star, right, and you mm -hmm. are going into it like, hey, us paying up is maybe 15 times earnings. I mean, do you think you're more insulated from all of these um, you know, potential things that really you can't answer because there are so many uncertainties out there? So, I mean, duration is important here, and... 
that's always my argument about like when people talk about junk bonds now versus in the past and stuff is you know the that the calculation involves what the yield is on what you're um, buying and stuff. And so if you go back 40 years and they're like, well, junk bonds had this rough period or well, 35 years or whatever, junk bonds had this rough period and whatever, but they were yielding a lot. Um, so now if the same thing happened with the same default things that we're seeing and stuff, um, it's less attractive because they're, they're not yielding that much. The, the same issue here. Um, yeah, it's not exactly value versus not value because look, it could be that your values in real estate and your values in whatever these asset things, which also have high prices. So some of the some of the part stuff, no, but stuff that yields a lot up front is different. I mean, Buffett laid this out with his arguments against Cisco at the '90s boom. Um, you know, we talked about NACO in a recent podcast. There are other ones. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, we talked about um, frost, you know, which involves interest rate stuff and whatever. But there's a bunch of stuff that's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 times earnings or whatever that will almost certainly earn that amount in free cash this year. Um, all the – even the cheap ones people say is reasonable of the Microsofts or the whatever, the, the ones that people say are reasonable in the information technology stuff is like a 3% yield if you're lucky. Um, getting 7% more is very helpful and extremely cushions the blow from collapsing asset prices and stuff. So if you look at something like that and it has a EV to sales of 11, well, obviously EV to sales can go to 5.5, right? That's not crazy. Um, so you can take a 50% loss. Now, the good news is you've got some growth and you've already got a better yield than something like the 30-year treasury was in COVID where that was a bubble. So Microsoft is not going to be as bad a potential loss in the certainty of the loss that you'll have, that there's no way out of it in the way that treasuries were. That that was more crazy, the treasury thing. But this is less as crazy as that. But yeah, you want as much of your 10% upfront as you can get. I mean, we are pretty extreme that way. Like I talk about whether we're value investable or not or whatever. We have, we're very, very big on getting a lot of free cash flow this year and the things that we own, Right. So we're when you do a DCF, we're very front loaded. Um, where the argument comes in is in the later periods in terms of whether the reinvestment will be as good and stuff. And there's no doubt it's better in other things. Look, my, Microsoft has done a much better job of getting a better and better return on its reinvestment than uh, NACO has. And so it's not like one is three times cheaper than the other, uh, you know, whatever, in terms of free cash flow yields or whatever. Um for no reason. There's a really good reason. But if you change discount rates so that you're significantly below um, kind of what the opportunity cost is there, then yeah, you're better protected on that. I mean, the 70s and 80s were a good period for value investing. And the recent period is a bad period for value investing for that reason. And I don't know exactly how you um, define value things, but if we mean things that earn a lot in cash this year... Today? <laughs> yeah next year, the year after. I mean, because look, the difference between when we were mentioning the, the things that trade at five, 10 times free cash flow versus the things that trade at 30, and this is not crazy. A large portion of the, the Russell or something doesn't even have the level I'm talking about. It has no free cash flow. It has negative earnings. I mean, I, this isn't that, I'm not picking NVIDIA or something, you know, I'm, I'm saying like a level that's like a Microsoft. Um, it would be, I mean, because look, 
according to QuickFS, the EVDIV free cash was actually worse. It's 2.5% is the yield, right? And actually, I believe QuickFS does the calculation giving Microsoft credit for stock-based comp, right? Which is wrong. Yeah. They shouldn't mm-hmm. do that. So, I mean, it's fine. That's what everyone does. And, and QuickFS is doing the same calculation that they do. But that, ha- that, that has to be offset by buying back your stock. So that's not right. So it's probably 2% or something. But yeah, it'll grow during the year and everything. But let's say 2 3%, whatever, versus 10 if we look out three years, the thing that's 10, especially if it grows a tiny bit, will return a third of the principal that you put down. This will, even with growth and stuff, not it's not going to do a lot more than 10%. I mean, maybe with a lot of growth and stuff, you're hoping to have 15% return to you or something. But, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about a really, really big difference in terms of how much of it gets returned, how quickly. And so if that's what you mean by value outperforming growth and stuff, then yeah, I would say things that are very front loaded to provide you with cash flows now. Yeah. That's, you know, um, that, you know, the, the tight oil stuff and things like that. Right. Um, how big a deal is the fact that it runs out after a few years or whatever? It, it depends if there's a lot of return up front, you know, um, I wrote about things with that, with the PV 10 and everything, but I, I'm not sure I'm as optimistic as other people are about the need to, have reserves be the same or higher over time as opposed to using up the reserves and paying out the cash um, because of this calculation, right? Um, You know, it's, I I mean, but but there are other things where that's not necessarily, uh, I mean, it depends because even the things that are, uh, asset based and stuff, if they unlock that asset value in some way would benefit the same way as what I'm talking about. Right. So there are companies looking at that they go, Oh, well, you know, we have a lot of underperforming things. If we got rid of them and just held it in cash, we'd now be making 5%. We'd be earning a lot more. Like at some point someone does a calculation and realizes actually our earnings could be higher using less assets like in the business. Um, and people usually don't realize that when it's near zero. Right. So like when it's near zero, they're just like, oh, we have assets that don't really do anything, but there's no need to shut them down if they don't lose a lot of money or something. Now people go, oh, you know, just cash earns a decent return. So why don't we sell stuff and turn it into cash? Mm -hmm. So what does the investor do today then? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's the Which is why the person was probably reaching out to you. Yeah. Yeah. There's the rational aspect of it. And and, um, a lot of people basically have to stay invested. So there's not much that you can do. Um, On a purely rational basis and stuff, I don't see why you would buy bonds or stocks right now, uh, to be honest. So if you had new money to allocate and you were just yourself, no one was going to see what you were doing, I would think that you would put it in cash and wait for something to do with it. I don't think that you would put it into these indexes. That doesn't mean there can't be individual stocks or whatever, but if you're asking, should I be in cash or an S&P 500 index, I would say cash. I I don't see the benefit, right? But having said that, it's hard to recommend that to people because that means other things to them. Um, Like, then they want to get out of it and get back in and whatever, you know. Um, But there's also problems with people think, oh, well, I just shouldn't, time things ever so i have to I was say are you time, time in the market if you're taking that view right but there is a limit to that there's a point at which you have to say yes you can't i mean that's my problem with index funds fundamentally uh 
it's wrong. It's 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 borderline immoral to tell people that you should always just invest in index no matter what, no matter what the price is and stuff, because that leads eventually to telling people that they should just, you know, set money on fire. If everyone adopts that sort of thinking that you're saying, then that's what could happen. Your whole basis is that other people will not be dumb enough to do what I'm telling you to do. So I'm telling you to do something that is reckless and will end in disaster if everyone does it, but everyone else will exercise sufficient caution that you won't have that problem, right? Like you can drive down the street at 90 miles an hour because they will jump out of your way is what the, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> that that is the logic of the, of that extreme of thinking about it, that, oh, I have to put something into stocks no matter what. There has to be a limit. If, if everything was at 30 times sales, are we still doing it? Are we still saying that i mean there has to be some point at which you sit down with pen and paper and say that there's not a way for me to get a return otherwise you could be like japan in in, in 1990 or whatever um you could be like some of this real insanity um and so it's rationally if we put aside what it would do to your habits and your thinking and stuff over time i do not see why, if you're in cash, moving to stocks or bonds has sufficient upside to take on more risk. You are taking on some risk, um, especially significant reinvestment issues, because, you know, you always read this. We took advantage of lower prices to go into this that funds say and stuff, which is bogus because they were 100 percent invested before the market fell. So they didn't take advantage of anything. They swapped some stocks for other stocks and had no advantage from the fact that things fell. Um you know, so I also think that if you have very overpriced things, it would be better to have a portfolio made up of more variety of things because at least some go up and some go down and then you could um, rebalance them and stuff. So so like such as I what? Mean, if both stocks and bonds are really expensive, I would rather be half in stocks and half in bonds than not. Um, I, I would rather be, I mean, if everything's expensive, you probably want to be 20 something percent in zero coupon bonds and 20 something percent in gold and 20 something percent in uh, cash and in S&P and then whatever, because at least then if literally everything was expensive, which it's not because like, you know, you are going to pay 5% on cash and stuff. So you could just hold cash. But if you had more things that you could switch between that would be some benefit at least. Um, you wouldn't want to be undiversified in an index fund if you think that's really expensive or undiversified in, in bonds, right? Because it, what would you do with this when prices fell? Where are you getting your source of funds? I mean, what we're talking about now is not even that you necessarily want that good return in something, but just to put it in something that won't fall when other things do fall is a big protection. Um, so, you know, cash can do that at least, but I think professionals and stuff can't, aren't really allowed to just be in cash. I mean, um, they would be told you can't do that. So, um, I, I don't have a really good answer to that, but if I, no, I mean, I don't expect bonds or stocks as like an index level stuff to really do particularly well against cash. And they have to do somewhat well, uh, somewhat better than cash for you to move you out of cash, I would think. The default position probably shouldn't be that I should be in something rather than being cash. It should be that there has to be some higher return expectation to get me out of cash. You know, I would kind of put the burden on the securities 
rather than cash instead of the other way around. But maybe other people would say the other way around. So uh, you can't definitively prove that cash will do better. So if your default is I should be in stocks unless you can prove for a fact that cash will do better, then no. If cash was 10%, we could prove it. 6%, you know, I don't know. 8%, it's very, it, we could pretty much prove it. 5 we can't prove it, you know. Um, so it, it, it it's not impossible that stocks could outperform. And, um, but I also think the discussion doesn't really, like in terms of what people's actual behavior is going to be, isn't really, we're not getting at what is really going to drive behavior, right? They're going to be in stocks because they need to be in stocks individually and to be able to talk about them and to do whatever. I mean, we're in stocks because we think that over time we can find situations to edge whatever to make some sort of returns. And so that's why we do it. If we really just thought that our returns could only be as good as an index, then we might have a different attitude about that. But that's why we search stocks and don't search other things, right? We don't really look through every bond compared to every stock compared to cash at all moments. Um, and I don't think most people listening to this will think the same thing. It'll be more like, should I get out of it or something? But I, I see little advantage and very relatively little difference between each of them. Um, in terms of catastrophic outcomes, cash is the safest. Um, it, what could derail you from your retirement or something at this point, uh, overweighting to cash is not the problem. Uh, it, it doesn't mean the other ones won't do better, but if they do better, the outcomes are small advantages over what it would have been. Whereas the, the bad outcomes could be fairly, uh, bigger. Um, so, you know, compared to what you're normally used to doing, I wouldn't, discourage anyone from having an unusually high amount of cash i mean unfortunately that's the like we talked about responding to the email and stuff that's the only real answer that you can give rationally is that yeah you should be in cash the, the experience that you're feeling is that cash is very competitive with the other things got it cool well i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the focus compounding podcast this is the first time you're joining us be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us here today if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrew at focuscompound.com um, and we would be happy to start that conversation. I want to thank everybody so much for all the support and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.